Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for FBC Keller Media in the iTunes Store. And now, here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. Let's take our Bibles now and open one more time to the book of Romans. And we're coming uh, down the home stretch of the Roman Road, this six sermon series, six passages in the book of Romans that equip us to share our faith with the lost and dying world. This morning I want to help us put some of the things we've been learning through this series uh, together to equip us to deal with some of the real world issues that we'll face when we go out and share the gospel. The title of today's message is The Way of Salvation. The text is Romans chapter 10, verses 4 through 10. I hope you've gathered that the theme of the entire book of Romans is justification, particularly and specifically the doctrine of justification by God's grace alone, through faith alone in Christ alone. This is the answer to life's most important question, which is how can a man be made right with God? But you know that when we share the gospel, we find that most people have other answers to life's most important question. Let me give you a few of the answers that I often hear. You can probably add others from your experience. And then we're gonna look at how the apostle Paul equips us to deal with those wrong answers. There are some people that I deal with who believe in salvation by genetics. I say, how do you know that when you die, you'll go to heaven? And they'll start the conversation with the sentence, well, my mother was a member of your church, or my father was a pastor or a deacon. Some people believe in salvation by philanthropy, that they can give away enough money or assets to make up for their past discretions. A very famous case of this was a few years ago, one of the wealthiest men in the world a man by the name of Warren Buffett called a press conference to announce that he was giving away $32 billion. By the way, there's a Christian principle here. If you're going to give away money, don't call a press conference to do it, okay? <laughs> but at the end of his press conference, he said this, quote, there is more than one way to get to heaven, but this is a great way, end quote. He's wrong on both counts. Others believe in salvation by comparison. They'll say, well, pastor, I know I'm not perfect, but I'm no fill in the blank. Adolf Hitler, Charles Manson, whoever they perceive to be obviously morally inferior to them. So their idea of heaven is find someone just a little bit worse than you and if you can beat them by a nose, you'll make it to heaven. You get the picture. Though Paul's letter to the Romans was written about 2000 years ago, people are still to this good day giving the same reasons. People have not changed. Technology has changed, transportation has changed, people don't change. So let's read our text this morning, I'll show you what I mean. Romans 10 verse four. For Christ is the head of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes that the man who practices the righteousness which is based on law shall live by that righteousness. But the righteousness based on faith speaks as follows. Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart, that is the word of faith which we're preaching. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes resulting in righteousness and with the mouth he confesses resulting in salvation. 
May the Lord add his blessing to the reading and the hearing of his word. Remember that we said last week that Romans can be easily divided into sections. This section of Romans begins in chapter 9. And in this section, the Apostle Paul is addressing the problem with the gospel as it relates to the Jews. Paul, of course, was a Jewish man. And like many Jewish people, he was awaiting the coming of a Savior called the Messiah. And yet, when Jesus came onto the scene, even among his people, even in Jerusalem, the holy city, the vast majority of people rejected him. In fact, by the time of Paul's writing of the book of Romans, the gospel was advancing among the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people, at a much greater pace than among Jewish people. And that trend, as you know, has continued to this good day. So how do you explain that? How do you explain the fact that Jesus came to his own people, he was prophesied about for hundreds of years, and they rejected him? Well, those of us who believe in the sovereignty of God over all matters, including salvation, see this as God's plan of redemption playing out, just as God had planned it. Paul indicates that here in this section, chapters 9, 10, and 11. But that does not excuse Jewish people from rejecting the Messiah. Remember Paul says twice in Romans, all men are without excuse. God will hold them accountable. Yet Paul was not some disinterested observer as it relates to his fellow countrymen. He was heartbroken when he thought about the widespread lostness among Jewish people. He says so beginning in chapter 10, verse 1. Look at it. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, that is Israel, is for their salvation. Though I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but it's not in accordance with knowledge. There has always been a faithful remnant of Jewish Christians, but by and large they have rejected Messiah. In fact, Paul in several of his letters calls the simple gospel of salvation by grace through faith a stumbling block to the Jews. Now, what does he mean by that? Well, if you've ever hiked in one of our national parks and uh, around a trail and there's a stone just barely peeking up over the surface of the ground and you stump your big toe on it, you know what a stumbling block is. Something that trips you up in your path. And this simple doctrine of salvation by grace through faith trips up a lot of Jewish people. Why? He explains, he says, because they sought to establish a righteousness of their own. They simply could not get past the notion that they had to do something, namely, keep the law to earn God's favor. And friends, that is the fundamental problem of not just Jewish people, but all religious people the world over. Because almost every ism in the world is another name for salvation by works. But we know per the scriptures that salvation is not of works, lest anyone should boast. That's the first point on your outline. Faith, not works. Look at verse 5. Paul says, for Moses writes that the man who practices the righteousness which is based on the law shall live by that righteousness. Now what does he mean by that? The man who practices the righteousness that is based on the law must live by that righteousness. Simply means that if you're going to start down the road to salvation based on your keeping of the law, that means you've got to keep it perfectly, right? Because God is perfect and righteous and holy. The problem is that no one does, Romans 3.23 tells us. The only one who has ever perfectly kept the law is Jesus. Now Paul contrasts man's pitiful attempts at works righteousness with the true gospel of justification by faith in Christ beginning in verse 6. But the righteousness based on faith 
speaks as follows, and he's quoting Leviticus chapter 18. Do not say in your heart who will descend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart, that is the word of faith which we are preaching. So Paul puts in contrast two roads to heaven. One is by works, and the other is by faith. And he says if you're gonna start down the road of works, you can't make one mistake or you're disqualified. If you start down the road of faith, it's the righteousness of Christ that is at stake, and of course, it will never fail. And so he says, don't say, let us ascend into heaven or descend into the abyss. That is, you don't have to do anything to earn God's salvation. Christ has already done everything that is necessary for you to be saved. There's nothing left to you to do except to believe. And Paul says that simple truth is a stumbling block for people that want to assist God. Faith alone is too big a pill to swallow. Now most people that you evangelize will readily recognize that they are not perfect. So that leads to another mistake. That is the belief in salvation by penance. That is I can make up for my sins with a one to one ratio of good things, good deeds. And that idea is very prevalent today, but it goes back for thousands of years, at least to the days of Greek mythology. Do you remember the story of Hercules? Hercules in Greek mythology was the son of Zeus. And Hercules was driven mad by Queen Hera to the point that he murdered his wife and his children. And when he came to his senses and realized what he had done, he fled to the city of Delphi where he prayed to the gods to forgive him, and they gave him penance to do. He had to do 12 tasks or 12 labors that were outrageously difficult. And if he completed those 12 labors, they would pronounce him redeemed. We use the phrase today, a Herculean effort, something that's incredibly difficult. Well, remember that people have not changed. We see a familiar understanding of that salvation by penance all around us today. In the Catholic Church, they teach salvation by faith plus the sacraments. You ask any Catholic priest, do you believe in salvation by faith? Guarantee they're going to say yes. But what they fail to mention is what must be added. It's the sacraments, the tradition of the church. Our Mormon friends believe in faith plus morality, ethics. Our charismatic friends believe in faith plus signs and wonders. And speaking of the charismatic movement, that brings us to our second point, faith not miracles. Now let me say here and now that I believe that God can and does perform miracles. You can say amen there if you believe that, okay. God still can perform miracles. I do not believe that people can perform miracles, particularly TV preachers. And some of the worst of them live and preach within a short drive of this very spot. These prosperity teachers find a willing audience among people for whom the gospel of justification by faith alone in Christ alone is a stumbling block. Do you ever notice that the things that, that Paul says people want to do, that is ascend to heaven or descend to hell to earn salvation, are humanly impossible? People are still today scrambling for the miraculous. They seek it, that is the miraculous, rather than the simple gospel, don't they? 
I had a missionary tell me one time that wherever he goes in the world with the gospel, Benny Hinn has already beat him there. <laughs> Stadiums are packed in third world countries and first world countries. And I say again, people have not changed. Turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16. In Matthew chapter 16, we see an interaction between the Lord Jesus and the scribes and Sadducees, the Pharisees, the religious elite of his day. They were always trying to catch him in a philosophical or religious trap. Here they are once again, Matthew 16. Now realize Jesus has already performed many miracles leading up to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16, one says, the Pharisees and Sadducees came to Jesus and tested him by asking him to show them a sign from heaven. And he replied, when evening comes, you say, it will be fair weather for the sky is red and in the morning today it will be stormy for the sky is red and overcast. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. He says, look, I've been giving you signs for three years. You don't understand it. You can look at the weather and tell what it's going to rain or, or be sunny tomorrow. But here is the Messiah fulfilling all of the Old Testament prophecies and you don't get it. And so he says in verse 4, a wicked and an adulterous generation looks for a sign, but none will be given except the sign of Jonah. And Jesus left them and went away. And you know what the sign of Jonah was. Three days Jonah spent in the belly of the well and then he came forth. He says the sign of the resurrection will be the next sign you see. Now admittedly Jesus did perform signs and wonders in his ministry, but none of them saved anyone from hell. Now he temporarily relieved the effects of the fall like blindness and leprosy and hunger. He even raised the dead for a while, but Lazarus not around anymore, is he? He died again. And yet people today seek for signs and wonders rather than the Savior. One of Jesus' most famous miracles was the feeding of the 5,000 recorded in John chapter 6. Remember that there on the far side of the Sea of Galilee, Jesus gathered and thousands of people came to hear him teach. And he began to be moved with compassion because they didn't have anything to eat. And he asked his disciples, what do we have to feed them? And they said, well, we don't have enough money in the bank to buy bread for all these people. He says, what do we have? You know, there's a lad here that has five barley loaves and a couple of fish. He says, bring them to me. And he prayed and remember he fed the 5,000. They had 12 baskets of leftovers. And people went away that night with a full belly. And that night Jesus and the disciples slipped away across to the other side of the sea. And the next morning the people came back expecting to find Jesus and he wasn't there. Verse 22, Matthew 16, the next day the crowd then stood on the other side of the sea, saw that there was no other small boat there except one, and that Jesus had not entered with his disciples into the boat, but they, his disciples, had gone away alone. And there came other small boats from Tiberias near to the place where they ate the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the small boats and came to Capernaum, seeking Jesus. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered them and said, truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him the Father God has set his seal. Therefore they said to him, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. So they said to him, what then 
do you do for a sign so that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness as it is written. He gave them bread out of heaven to eat. Then Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, Lord, always give us this bread. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, but he who believes in me will never thirst. And Jesus says, look, you, you didn't come here because the signs that I perform authenticated my Messiahship. You came because you were hungry this morning. And you said, I know where we can get a good meal. That is, they were being pulled along by the physical. Jesus says the spiritual is incredibly more important than the physical. Because no matter what you have in the world that is of a physical nature, it all has one thing in common. Whether it's food or clothes or houses or boats or land. Peter says one day it's all going to be burned up with fervent heat. So how foolish it is to invest your life singularly in the physical, and yet people do it every day. Jesus made it clear that salvation is not to be found in signs and wonders, but by his grace appropriated through faith in him. And yet people come by the droves to get the bread of life, excuse me, the bread that perishes, don't they? Not the bread of life. And greedy preachers are more than happy to give them what they want. Promises of earthly wealth and long life and an easy death. Do you find it interesting that Jesus never promised any of those things? In fact, he said, if you're going to follow me, you have to take up your cross daily. It's going to be hard. It's a narrow road that leads to heaven. It's fraught with dangers, toils, and snares. And I think that is why, if I'm remembering correctly... I have never heard a prosperity preacher encourage his congregation to labor hard in the word. You ever heard a prosperity preacher say, now folks, go home and study your Bible. Really work hard prayerfully on what it says and what it means. Because he knows if they did, he'd be exposed as a fraud. And that's why we Christians must be discerning. That is to compare what we are taught by teachers and preachers with God's unchanging word. One more point. Faith, not positivity. Now, I did not take this point directly from the text, and for that I apologize. But this belief is so pervasive in our culture today that I feel like we must address it. It's the idea of positive affirmation or positive confession or the word of faith movement, whatever you want to call it. The idea is that if you are a positive person, and you think positive thoughts and you say positive things, then you are bound to attract good things into your life. Now, that's a very common and popular concept in philosophy among the celebrity crowd, particularly talk show hosts. And they espouse it regularly as a way of life. Those that don't even claim to believe in God believe that this positive affirmation is how they got to be wealthy and, and famous. The problem with that is that that philosophy has been co-opted into the church. And the other problem is that there are many people that are espousing this philosophy from pulpits claiming it to be the gospel of Jesus Christ, and it is not. And it's not a recent phenomenon. It goes back many years 
I'll list a few names that you probably remember if you're as old as me. Norman Vincent Peale, do you remember him? He wrote a little book called The Power of Positive Thinking and he had a little magazine every month called Guidepost that my grandmother used to get. And I would read it and it'd be full of inspiring stories and seems harmless enough until you, you scratch below the surface and you realize that is being espoused as the gospel. Live a positive life. My little boy's playing baseball for the first time this year and he had his first game yesterday. And every week, this is not a religious organization, but they teach them a positive value. And, and yesterday's value was positivity. And so the coach, bless his heart, gathers the little five-year-olds up and tries to get their attention for two minutes, which is quite a feat, Herculean feat. <laughs> and he says, today's value is positivity. Be positive out there. Let's go. And that was it. But you know, when you really get below the surface, that's about 90% of what's being taught in some churches today. It, it's a positivity pep rally. Very little mention of the gospel of, of, of Jesus Christ. And that comes from this long line of, of those who bought into this. Norman Vincent Peale's not the only one. One of his disciples was Charles Schuller, who created one of the first mega churches out in Southern California called the Crystal Cathedral. And then there's a very popular one today called Joel Osteen, who has a church down in Houston that they can't build a big enough building for people to sit in. But it's all the same thing. It's all rooted in the gospel of positivity. And friends, it makes people feel good, but it is poison. Because Satan doesn't care if you have a positive self-image or a negative self-image, as long as you stay on the road to hell. Remember I said last week there's two roads? Jesus said it, not me. One is entered to by a big gate. It's an eight-lane superhighway, and it's smooth, and people enjoy the ride, and they think it's going to heaven, but it's not. The other is entered to by a turnstile, one at a time, and it's a hard path and a narrow road, and it leads to heaven. And what's important about a road is not how smooth or wide it is, but where it's going, right? And you can go to hell with a positive outlook or you can go to hell with a negative outlook. Satan doesn't care. Now, why do I say all of this? It's because as we talk about doing personal evangelism, we need to realize that we don't do personal evangelism in a vacuum. In one sense, I think it would be much easier to evangelize a rank atheist than a religious person that holds any of the false views that we've looked at this morning. Because with an atheist, you don't have all of that to overcome. You just have to get to the point of the truth. But, but at the end of the day, and this is very important, listen very closely. At the end of the day, any answer to the question, how can a man be made right with God, that is not salvation by grace through faith in Christ, is a wrong answer. And it gives evidence that a person to whom you ask that question is on a path that will one day lead to hell. Now, let's look at the right answer, can we? Verses 9 and 10, your memory verses for this week. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes resulting in righteousness and with the mouth he confesses resulting in salvation.
That if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord. What does it mean to confess Jesus as Lord? Well, a lot of people say, well, that, it means to walk an aisle. It means to fill out a card up front or it means to be baptized even. Well, those are all good things and particularly baptism is a biblical thing, but that's not what it means to confess Christ as Lord. To confess Christ as Lord is to declare his personal sovereignty over your life. Now, we use a lot of different phrases and terms to describe salvation, some of which aren't very accurate, I'm afraid. And I think we need to learn to think and speak clearly as it relates to our salvation. Have you ever heard someone say, when I was 15 years old, I made Jesus Lord. And they mean well, and I'm not making fun of them. I've probably even used that phrase before. But I can assure you, no 15-year-old makes Jesus anything, okay? Jesus is Lord. And perhaps at a point in time when you were 15, the Holy Spirit opened your eyes to see that he was Lord and graciously granted you faith and repentance, and you were saved. But we don't make Jesus Lord, he is Lord. To confess Jesus as Lord is to personally recognize his right to rule and reign your life. Not just that he created the universe and has the right to superintend it, but he created you and has the right to run your life. And then you live that out. That's what it means to confess Jesus as Lord. It's not some magical incantation. It's not words said in the proper order after the preacher. It's not raising your hand during the invitation. And it's not intellectual assent to historical facts. People say, well, I believe in the virgin birth and the, the death of Jesus' resurrection. James says, congratulations, that makes you even with a demon. Because Satan believes all of that, right? But he doesn't confess Jesus as Lord. In fact, he rebels against Jesus and everything that's about Jesus. Now, you have to believe those intellectual effects to be saved, but that doesn't, that's not confession of Jesus as Lord. It's not intellectual assent. It's acknowledgement that Jesus is your personal sovereign. And then the second part of that is believe in your heart. Well, another word for belief is faith, isn't it? And remember that salvation is by grace through the means of what? Faith. Faith is the means, the vehicle through which you're saved by the blood of Jesus. And he says, faith in the truth of the resurrection. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead. Now, wait a second. Why does Paul, out of all of the core doctrines of the Christian faith, seize upon the resurrection as the one doctrine that you must believe in to be saved? Well, we find in other places he doesn't use that terminology when someone asks, how can I be saved? Why not the virgin birth? Why doesn't he say, and believe in your heart that Jesus was born of a virgin? Or believe in your heart that Jesus lived a sinless life? Or believe in your heart that Jesus was literally crucified on the cross? Or believe in your heart that Jesus was three days in the tomb? Or believe in your heart that Jesus ascended into heaven and is now seated at the right hand of the Father? Because the resurrection is the summation of all of the work of Jesus. Through the resurrection, we see that all of the claims of Jesus are true. That's why Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 talks about the, the core essence of the gospel, that Jesus lived, Jesus died, and Jesus rose again. There are some people in the church saying, well, we like part of the gospel, but this resurrection thing, that's a step too far. 
Paul explains in that whole chapter why the resurrection is essential to the gospel message. And I think what Paul means here is if you can believe the, the resurrection, that Jesus by his own power defeated death in the grave, then you can believe the rest of it. And you do believe the rest of it, right? He's not saying other parts of the gospel are not essential. He's just saying that the resurrection is the summation of all the gospel. Now, why, why do I labor so hard to explain this? Because we're about to go out to the world, to your communities, to your place of business, to the ball fields, and, and share the gospel. Some of you are already doing that, and I'd love to hear the stories. And when you encounter people and you ask them key questions, and you get to the question is, how can a man be made right with God? You're going to hear all kinds of answers. Some of the categories you're going to hear are salvation by works. Well, I, I'm a pretty good husband or wife or nephew. I'm a hard worker. Salvation by integrity, I guess. Some are going to say salvation by genetics. My, my parents and grandparents on both sides were Christians. Therefore, I'm a Christian. Some are going to say salvation by comparison. I'm better than this person or that. And we have to be ready for that. And when you're listening to those answers, what you're listening for is a faith answer. And any answer that is not, I'm trusting in what Christ did on my behalf, is a wrong answer. And gives indication that that person more than likely is not on the path that leads to heaven. And that informs you of how you can open your Bible, or even better yet, take the six passages from Romans that you've memorized over the last month and a half and bring that to bear in a gospel conversation. Can you save anybody? No. But here's what the Lord does supernaturally. He takes His proclaimed Word, the Holy Spirit takes that Word and He uses it to convict people of sin and judgment and righteousness. He calls them to faith, he opens blind eyes, he raises the spiritual dead, and he gets the glory. That's what evangelism is. What a privilege we have of being a part of it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for your word. And Lord, people have not changed, as we've seen today, the same wrong answers about life's most important question are being perpetuated today in the same way they were in the time of Jesus and Paul. Help us to be discerning, Father, as Christians. Help us to have good listening ears to hear what people are saying. Father, would you be pleased to use the members of First Baptist Church of Keller to evangelize this community and even other communities around the world for the name of Jesus. Lord, we confess we have no power to save, but we have the most powerful message in the world. We have the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to spread it freely wherever we go and trust you with the results. We thank you for those results in advance. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.